and welcome to the Is That So podcast. My name is Sohela, and I am the host and chief content officer here at the Is That So podcast. Follow along each week as I share stories, pose questions, and provide insights on various wellness, travel, and relationship topics aimed to help us all navigate through this rapidly evolving modern world a little bit easier. Here at the Is That So podcast, we believe that life should always be a work in progress. So come learn, laugh, and listen in on unfiltered stories and conversations so that we can open new doors to inspiration, happiness, and forward thinking together. Hello, and welcome back to the Is That So podcast. Today on the podcast, I have invited best-selling author and psychotherapist, Dr. Diane Gayhart, to come on the show and teach us all playful ways we can transform any aspect of our life and increase our daily dose of joy. For those who don't know Dr. Gayhart, she is a professor at California State University, a psychotherapist, an author of over 12 books, and an award-winning educator. Her research has been featured in newspapers, on radio shows, and on television worldwide. And currently, she maintains an active private practice in the Los Angeles area. Welcome, Dr. Diane Gayhart. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to have you on the show and to learn about how I can add more joy and playfulness into any and all aspects of my life. But before we begin, I would love it if you could tell us your origin story of how you became a best-selling author, psychotherapist, and mental health expert. Wow, gosh, it's been quite a journey. I am one of those people who actually knew what I wanted to do in like high school. And I went and I did it. Um, Although the one unexpected part of my journey was when I went to college, um, I went back, I was Mm -hmm. from Los Angeles. I went back east to the College of Women Mary. And there was this fateful moment where I was sitting in my advisor's office. He was this totally, Mm -hmm. um, how shall I put it gently, um, he was like a robot type rat researcher, psych psychology rat researcher. Uh-huh. Very totally intimidating. <laughs> I'm terrified of this guy. And I'm sitting in his office and he's like, okay, this is what you need to be to take a be a psych major and you get one elective. And and I'm like, can I go home and look at the catalog of courses? He's like, no, I don't have time for that. I'm like, oh my God. And so I like fell through and I'm like, wow, they have a department of religion. Is that allowed at a public school? I'm like, wow, they have a course in Buddhism. That's so cool. And I'm like, I've always wanted to learn about Buddhism. I'm from California. I'm supposed to know. So I randomly signed up for this upper division advanced course. Everyone else spoke Japanese and Chinese in the course, but me. But I got introduced to Buddhist psychology very early in my career, which um, really, I think, has so much to offer us in the West. And so that's, yeah. I've, I've had this parallel journey of understanding Western psychology and Eastern psychology. And so that's really kind of my, that fateful moment, we all have one. And so, yeah, that's really how it started, kind of bringing, I think, a much more positive and upbeat approach. I mean, It is amazing how, I don't know how we've done it in this culture, but we have figured out how to make pursuing happiness like 
a drudgery and misery and like not a happy yeah. journey. And it's like discipline, 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 mm-hmm. deny, deny yourself joy. And uh, but it's this weird way. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a professor of psychotherapy, and um, one of the first things I had to do is like in the first year, it's like, I, I'll tell you this, and, and I, I do think, I mean, psychotherapists have so much to offer the planet, but like in the first year, often, you know, it's almost like people are trying to get each other to cry, you know, score, I got my client in tears, <laughs> and I'm like... It's really okay uh-huh. to let them laugh, too. So um, that's kind of, I think, um, part of my origin story. It has a lot of little twists in there. Yeah. So what, what do you think is like the main difference between Eastern and Western therapy? Yeah. So there isn't really Eastern psychotherapy, but there is Eastern psychology, which uh, which is in the Buddhist psychology. And Buddhism really has almost more psychology than religion in it. Mm-hmm. And most people don't understand it because we keep putting it, you know, in departments of religion. We put it in the category of religion. But I think the real major difference is in the West. Uh, I would say we're we're constantly kind of like pursuing improvement like we're going to get better and better and we have a new goal. We reach that and we go, go on. And so we, we're very great. I mean, it's really done a lot of good things in our culture, but it's kind of like happiness is something you pursue, right? That is like the constitution, right? The pursuit of happiness. It's one of our rights that we fight so hard for. Yeah. We're in Asian psychology. It is about creating equanimity, which is a and pursuing wisdom and equanimity is the ability to move up and down with life with the ebb and flow of life and to be able to go with the flow and so Mm -hmm. when they're pursuing quote unquote happiness and that's not probably the word they would use they're looking at cultivating wisdom and learning how to cultivate equanimity because the basic assumption of buddhist psychology is there will be suffering that is a given where in the West, we are trying to find all these different ways to escape suffering. Yeah. And, you know, newsflash, folks, it's not possible. And yeah. so we are on this constant treadmill that um, fails us. Mm-hmm. And and so we sort of have happiness for periods when we're pursuing and we think we finally found the answer to whatever our problem was. Yeah. And and, and then when that falls through, we have, a, we have the down, right? And mm-hmm. so the Buddhists are like, yeah, that's what life is. Get over it. And, yeah. and so that bit of wisdom, I think, really allows you to have a much more realistic expectation about life and the ebbs and flows of, of how life goes. There are ups and there's downs. Mm-hmm. That's so true. And I always think, you know, it's not about finding a balance in life. It's about finding a harmony because there are going to be these ups and downs. And so if you can harmonize with that and also just realize that today you might face a challenge, tomorrow it's going to be easy breezy. And that's just kind of how life is and not to get too like anxious and and worked up about it, but just accept that that's that's the beauty of life. You can't appreciate the highs without experiencing the lows. Exactly. And I think in the West, we've really, um, and and I actually think psychotherapy and psychology have been selling something that's not true. You know, I think 
there is this myth out there that a lot of professionals are, you know, perpetuating that if you do all the right things, you can be, you know, eternally happy or with very few bumps in the road and that Mm -hmm. you can overcome all of this suffering. And I actually think the, I mean, that psychotherapy, psychology, this whole discipline that I'm a part of, (laughs) inadvertently, I don't think it's anyone's intention, but it has created this sense where someone else has the secret. And if I can just figure out what that secret is, mm-hmm. then I'm going to be free of suffering and get everything I want and I'll be perpetually happy and in a state of bliss. Mm-hmm. But that's not true because we are forever evolving, right? So how can you predict how you're going to evolve when you haven't even become that thing yet? Exactly. And we can't predict what life is going to you know, throw at us. If there's nothing that 2020 and 2021 have not shown us, is yeah. that <laughs> life is highly unpredictable. And um, if you allow that to totally throw you off course, you're going to end up very anxious and depressed a significant portion of your life, rather than if you have the mindset of, you know what? Life can be unpredictable. There are times that are be good. Times are going to be bad. I'm going to do the best I can with what I know. And that's good enough. That is okay. Mm-hmm. So how can we transform any aspect of our life to be more playful and to increase our daily dose of joy? <laughs> so... Um, In my recent book, Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers, I certainly go into that quite a bit. And, you know, one of the simple things I suggest and that the book's kind of built around is to play with life's pleasures. It's so funny when we think of mindfulness. I mean, the the research behind it is phenomenal. It really is in many ways an antidote to a lot of our Western stresses and, and, and really some of our uh, kind of irrational beliefs about life. Oh, totally, um, yeah. And so, but, you know, something as simple as meditating what I'm meditating with chocolate, and it, it is so funny to hear people's initial response often to this concept is like, oh, you can't do that. That's not real meditation. You know, I'm like, why is it that everything has to be hard in our world to be worthy? Mm-hmm. So something as simple as, you know, taking a piece of chocolate, it can, you know, it can be as simple as even water or, or tea or a coffee, But literally taking two minutes, three minutes, five minutes to mindfully experience it. And I'm talking about looking at that chocolate like you've never seen it before, smelling it. And, you know, one of the key points of my little meditation with chocolate is, you know, is to really get your mind to quiet down mm-hmm. and to also notice what your, how your mind works, what it does, and to develop this observer perspective with the mind. And what's really interesting is that meditating on chocolate, which seems way too much fun to actually be useful, is actually <laughs> a very advanced meditation because part of it is you put that chocolate up to your mouth and you can do this every single day and it, it doesn't have to be chocolate, be coffee or tea or whatever, mm-hmm. and just notice what your mind does. As you have that chocolate next to your lips, your mind starts racing with emotions, with thoughts, with anticipation, and and being able to just watch your mind in action, having an intense emotional response, even though this is, for most people who do this, it will be a positive response, but Mm -hmm. even watching your mind race with emotion, thought, anticipation, and just observe it, don't do anything, don't judge it is really powerful so that when you get triggered later on, if you do this regularly, you're able to watch your mind 
have a strong emotional reaction and not be fused with it. We've kind of come to believe in our society. We are our thoughts. Yes. And we are our emotions. Yes. And, you know, you can have a thought go through your head or an emotion go through your mind that you don't actually agree with. Yeah. Because <laughs> it goes through your mind. You don't even have to stand by it. Yeah. And go, wow, that's an overreaction. Yeah. Wow, that's kind of ridiculous. Oh, totally. And so something as silly as holding this chocolate or a piece of fruit or your tea or your coffee just up to your mouth and your, your mind is anticipating this usually probably positive thing. It's even more powerful if it's something you don't like. And just watch your mind in action and that ability to observe your mind actually grows with practice. And mm-hmm. so that is one of the reasons why mindfulness is, you know, this cure-all for depression, anxiety, and lots of other stresses is because you activate this, you know, ability that philosophers have talked about for, you know, uh, at least hundreds of years. How is it that the mind can observe itself? It really is an interesting cycle of a philosophical question. But psychologically, developing that ability allows you to not be fused with your mental experience. And so that is why something like chocolate meditation can be so powerful in helping you learn how to deal with life's, you know, more difficult moments more easily. And then Mm -hmm. the second part is to slowly eat that chocolate or sip that tea or coffee and to actually try not to judge it, try not to label it, just experience it. Like don't compare it to chocolate you had before, Mm -hmm. you know, or the last time or this or that. Just experience it while quieting that inner judgment voice is so transformative because if you can learn to quiet that inner critic, (laughs) even when you're just eating chocolate, it really does transform. And again, what you're doing is creating this ability to observe your own mind in action. And you begin to notice when you're sitting there judging, judging, judging. And if you're not learning to practice watching your mind in motion, you're, you're this rambling narrator in our head it is just going at full speed all day long unedited and it's really programmed by media that we take in our friends our family yeah our insecurities as well totally which is just fueled by all these other people it's not even really your own thoughts Mm -hmm. and so this silly act of mindfully eating chocolate observing it taking it in quieting that inner narrator while watching your mind you know anticipate eating it Watch quieting the voice of judgment while you slowly eat it is simple, it's fun, and it actually develops this neurological ability to, to relate to that inner stream of thoughts that really is programmed more by society than us unless you consciously learn how to program it. Right. Yeah. And I totally believe in the power of mindfulness And bringing awareness to your thoughts. Actually, when I was at the peak of dealing with my anxiety, using grounding techniques, which is a form of mindfulness, was a way to Mm -hmm. help me really start to get a hold of my own anxiety and, and calm my thoughts. Even today, I was feeling a little anxious this morning and I just stepped outside and just looked around and, and saw all the flowers in bloom and the bright blue sky and leaves kind of falling down from the trees. And I was like, wow, this is actually kind of magical. And it allowed me a moment to quiet my thoughts and just appreciate the life I have. Obviously, gratitude is another great tool. But um, 
I find that having moments of mindfulness, you know, whether chocolate is involved or not, it's great at, like you said, listening to your thoughts. I'm learning more and more to be an observer and not to take my thoughts so personally or identify them because, yeah, a lot of the time they are completely uncensored, not necessarily true, not necessarily how I feel, even though I'm I judge them. You know, like sometimes I'll I'll think something and be like, that was kind of mean or that was kind of dark or bad. And then take that personal or even I've absorbed something like I didn't even know what hip dips were until (laughs) someone told me on Instagram and then that becomes something that I all of a sudden become aware of when you know I could have lived a blissful life not knowing what hip dips were and it wouldn't have made a difference to me you know and it's like obviously it doesn't make a difference to me but we are constantly given all of this information that we're told to feel insecure about or like told almost like we should be worried about these things. But really, it's all normal. And, you know, life would have been better or fine if we didn't even know about them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I, I do think that is one of the little secrets that's actually a huge secret. And it's increasingly important that we, we really need to be critical consumers of um, what type of media, what type of images we take in. Mm-hmm. Um, it really significantly affects our happiness. And especially when you look at things like social media and news feeds, you don't even have control over the images, the thoughts, the opinions, where you have very little control at times, you know, that that comes into your consciousness. And just like you're saying, this one distinction of, you know, hip dips, like all of a sudden now there's this huge other stressor in your life, right? This whole other thing to worry about. And so I, I think there's a kind of this assumption that, well, you just have to take it all in. You have to know all of this. And it is definitely not increasing our happiness. And I think one of the most disturbing statistics is that, you know, with the rise of social media, uh, with our teens and teens getting access to smartphones Uh and social media streams, mental health for our youth in the United States the rates have doubled, yeah, directly correlated with the use of social media. Mm-hmm. And the rates of suicide have gone up. It is very, very alarming. And it's surprising to me that it's really not known in the general public how poorly our, our youth are doing psychologically, emotionally. We went to one in four youth under the age of 18 being diagnosed with a major mental health disorder So, you know, and that includes primarily anxiety disorders, depression, Mm -hmm. ADHD. We went from one in four to 50% in one decade with the rise of social media. So that means that half of our youth are going to have a significant, this is not, we have a stress disorder called adjustment disorder. This is like a major mental health issue by the time they reach 18. Mm -hmm. That's not acceptable. You know, that is really a problem. And most parents, I don't think, actually understand um, what's going on. Well, I don't think, you know, anyone knew the adverse effects of social media when this all began. Like, I feel like it's such a great tool. It's such a, a cool way to connect to people as a content creator and a creative. Like, I love using the platform to share my work and to inspire others. But of course, 
there is a good and bad way to use any tool like this. And if you can't control the content that you're absorbing or like, I also feel like sometimes, you know, you get a lot of clickbait articles or like clickbait things like, for example, that hip dip thing. It was mm -hmm. exercises to cure hip dips. And I'm like, what the heck are hip dips? You know, and I didn't even know what they were to begin with. And now I'm like, oh, so I have to fix this. This is something that like it's the wording, you know, it's it's something that creates this anxiety in people the way it is introduced so that people click it so that people engage with it and it doesn't really like change your value or change your worth so there is a, always going to be a good way and a bad way but I feel like no one knew how it was going to affect people's mental health in the long run and I think maybe we're still also learning how to use it correctly yeah absolutely I do think so I do think there's a learning curve going on here there are definitely lots of positives and yeah. there the are lots of potential negatives. And so being very conscious of that, to be very critical and reflect on how do I feel when I look on, at these posts or this or whatever it is, you know, how do I feel afterwards? Do I like that? Do I want to keep doing this? Mm -hmm. Do I not? And realizing, you know, especially for teens and young adults, I think it is so important to really consciously choose who is your kind of reference group? Who are you comparing yourself to? Who are your friends? And, you know, if those social groups and reference points are not making you feel good, you know, when you look in the mirror or when you're out and connecting with others, then you need to find a different reference point. Mm -hmm, and, right. it, it's, and that is just so important and in terms of really critically analyzing how those social influences, whether it's social media or friendships, how they are affecting how you see yourself. And I, I think that's certainly something we all need to be very mindful of at any age, truthfully. Right. We see the most significant effects in, in youth and mm -hmm. young adults. So how does mindfulness add more playfulness into our lives and increase our joy. I love your story about going out and seeing the flowers and, and seeing the blue sky and just taking that moment to be in the present moment and to experience what's going on. Mm -hmm. I actually do something very similar most mornings. One of the first things I do is I'm a tea drinker, get a cup of tea, and I go outside and I just take in the morning. And it is that one or two minutes kind of like you're describing, it really helps kind of shift your mindset. Uh -huh. And I think many people get into this concept where practicing mindfulness is takes discipline. You have to sit there for 10, 15, 20 minutes to really get the benefits. And, and they make it on this really huge task. And I think taking small sips of joy throughout the day yeah. is very important. And small sips of being mindful, um, of really even consciously inviting fun, playfulness, laughter, you know, into your day. Uh, and another one that has actually phenomenal research is gratitude, which you mm -hmm. mentioned. And, you know, the real key to gratitude, I'll share with you my favorite gratitude hack is every day to sit down like Monday through Friday mm -hmm. with that whatever cup of coffee or tea in the morning and think of five things you're thankful for to do it at the end of each day and to just connect it to, a you know, usually a meal time is the simplest way to do it. If you got a family, you can go around the table. Everyone says what they're, you know, thankful for. But you needs to be three to five things. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that 
is I want you to stretch and to have to work a little bit hard to find those last few things you're thankful for and to create a little bit of stress in terms of finding what you're thankful for. Because what that actually does, and this is like the the best practical joke we can play on our nervous system. (laughs) There's actually a part of the brain uh, in the limbic system, the stress response called the amygdala. Mm -hmm. The amygdala keeps a list of everything that's dangerous that we've ever experienced, okay? Okay. And we do not have the corollary where there's a part of our structure in our brain that is keeping a list of everything that brings us joy. We don't have it. It's in there. You have to consciously get your brain to notice what makes you happy. But you don't have to consciously work on what stresses you out. Your brain does that for you in the amygdala. So that's one of the reasons where we're really wired for anxiety and not for happiness. Mm -hmm. Like happiness takes a little more conscious effort than being anxious. We are naturally wired to be anxious because it keeps us alive. The humans who were worried, you know, thousands (laughs) of years ago, they lived. The ones who were chill and calm, they got eaten. So this amygdala... um, is keeping track of everything that's dangerous. And what we want to put on that amygdala stress list is noticing things that I'm thankful for. And so that is why you need to stress your brain just a little bit in that gratitude exercise so that your amygdala then is searching all day long for items for your evening list of what you're going to be thankful for. Mm -hmm. And so it harnesses your amygdala that is usually creating all your anxiety to help find your joy. Mm-hmm. Because what you're doing is getting your amygdala to like, oh, I got to have five things for tonight when I come home, right? To share at the dinner table. Yeah. So your amygdala, you're using this part of your brain that's normally generating stress to create more appreciation, gratitude, and happiness. And I think that is the best neurological hack um, I've ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to actually ask you also about essential elements. What are they? And are they different for everyone or how do we identify them? Well, I think really the essential element is uh, the probably the most important one is equanimity. Um, along with I, I, mindfulness is, is definitely an, uh, highly correlated with happiness, but consciously cultivating equanimity and wisdom. We don't talk a lot about wisdom in our society. Mm-mm. And it's interesting, but wisdom really is learning from your mistakes in very simple ways, um, yes. but also being able to see a much broader picture. So wisdom is really keeping a very big perspective and equanimity is being able to move gracefully with life's ups and downs. So when things are going well, it's like, this isn't going to last forever, so I really want to enjoy it now. Mm-hmm. You know, when things are down, it's like, this happens, you know, loss happens, challenges happen, roadblocks come up. That's just part of life too. And it's okay. Yeah. And I think for most of us in the West, that is where most of us get stuck is when things aren't right, we start attacking ourselves, others, or both. Mm-hmm. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Life does this. This is part of the journey. <laughs> and in fact, if life were, you know, what happens is this concept called the hedonistic treadmill, which describes basic human psychology, which mm-hmm. is the mind needs constant newness to even notice what's going on. And the example I like to give with this is, you know, my kids would love to have ice cream every day of the week. <laughs> Right. So if I gave them ice cream every day of the week after two to three months, probably even less than that. But for most adult happinesses, it happens after about three months. It's well-documented phenomenon. The brain doesn't even register it anymore as like 
something special. Yeah. And so then now for, you know, to have a special treat on Saturday and Sunday, you know, I've got to add syrup, you know, and then after a while I have to add whipped cream and nut and cherry. And then yeah. after that, I got to put candy toppings and that's the hedonistic treadmill. So after two to three months, you know, whether it's marriage, uh, promotion, you know, winning a, you know, a million dollars, whatever it is, after three months, your happiness goes back to baseline. Mm-hmm. So so much of our culture is totally based on incorrect understanding of human psychology, where we have to get much, much better at learning how to find joy in the process of pursuing our goals, yeah. not in the goal itself. Mm-hmm. And that is so countercultural. Um, and we kind of have it backwards. We're really, it's kind of like suffer, 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 so I can achieve the goal. Mm-hmm. And then let's suffer, 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 then I achieve the goal. And then after three months, you're like disillusioned. Yeah. <laughs> or you're back to where you were before. Yeah. And so that those are some of the real um, important points in terms. So that is where things like, you know, mindful chocolate eating, you know, going out and just spending two minutes and taking in the beauty around you in nature, putting in these little practices into your day and to find a way to make your daily routines enjoyable. Right. It's really an important practice. Mm-hmm. Funny thing, while you were talking, I was thinking maybe when it comes to work and stuff, we think that, oh, we have to like really overwork ourselves and work hard in order to really climb the ladder and make sacrifices and blah, blah, blah. And then in other aspects of our life, we'll like avoid things like we can be so good at avoiding hard conversations or avoiding breaking up with our partner because we don't want to like enter that painful zone yet or maybe we're getting something out of the relationship or maybe we're just feel like we're not worthy so we have this ability to avoid pain as much as we are to endure it and because of that we'll avoid certain things at all costs like I said like breaking up with a partner that we know isn't good for us but I think Sometimes our painful experiences, like a breakup, allow us to step into a new chapter of our lives that is actually going to be so much better for us and more aligned with our own values or what our dreams are. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, and I really appreciate, you know, you're you're spot on because humans are funny. And there is research around this, too. There's only so much discipline we can take. (laughs) And so, like they say, never go on a diet when you're trying to put yourself on a budget, too. You know, you you don't have enough self-discipline to do both. Yeah. So to really be conscious of that. And then there's just certain spheres of life where we're, you know, willing to work harder, take more risks or endure more challenges than others. And that's and everyone's different on that in terms of how that plays out. Um, But you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And that is um, in Buddhist psychology, they call it accepting what is, you know, they talk, you hear, you hear people talk about acceptance. And in the West, we often have this, this sense that acceptance is resignation. We've given up, we've just accepted, you know, life, you know, there is suffering. This is just awful. Where from the Buddhist perspective, it's very different when they, it just doesn't translate well. The word historically has been translated as acceptance, but it's more like acknowledging what is. Mm-hmm. And that is something we don't do well in the West, which is why we're so good at progressing because we're going to keep ignoring what is. But from a Buddhist psychology perspective, accepting what is, what that involves is just acknowledging 
the truth. And it doesn't mean, you know, let's say you're in a abusive relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Accepting what is doesn't mean, oh, my partner is abusive towards me and I just have to accept this is what is. That's not what they mean at all. Mm-hmm. What they mean is not deluding yourself by saying, oh, this is okay. And there's there was an excuse and there's, you know, this reason and that reason. Uh, and just kind of almost deluding yourself. It's like, I am in an abusive relationship. Yeah. How do I want to handle this? You know, this is what is, being able to see things clearly. Mm-hmm. And I think most of us have a lot of conscious effort don't see what is. We, we see what we want to see. We see what we've been taught to see. We really struggle with just acknowledging what is. Because when you do, you normally do have a flood of emotions. Yeah, or a judgment. or <laughs> A judgment. Yeah. Yeah. You have this strong emotional negative reaction. You don't want to have that strong emotional negative reaction. And so you kind of go into some version of denial mm-hmm. around it all. And because you just don't want to experience it, what that is. And so what the, you know, Buddhist psychology teaches us to do, which I, I think, which is why mindfulness has been so attractive and popular in the West, is it invites you to just sit down, let that wave of emotion wa- wash over you, that, that negative emotion you didn't want to have, just let it happen, because it does end. It, they all end. They, yeah. It always ends. <laughs> but just let it move. Don't fight it, because if you let it move through you, you can feel it. After it subsides, you're going to have a much clearer head. And the ironic thing is you're going to have a lot more choice and freedom in how to handle the situation. Yeah. Because when you move into denial, you put yourself in a box. You put yourself in a position where you won't, you don't want to see something. So you kind of have to twist yourself in a knot not to see what the reality is. Mm-hmm. And so you actually create a lot more suffering in the long term because you don't want to relax into this uncomfortable truth. Yeah. And I think that's what can really take the joy out of living life is when you don't have self-compassion or you're not acknowledging things. You're in this like state of denial, like you said, and you're not moving forward. Because as soon as you stop evolving and as soon as you stop progressing through your struggles and your challenges, then you're stuck. Then you're dying, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So so if you're putting yourself in that box, then you're essentially you're you're stifling yourself. And and uh, the pain, you might think like, oh, this is gonna be not so painful now, but the pain in the long term is worse. Absolutely, absolutely. And I have just met with countless individuals who we're so afraid of feeling whatever that one pain is. They sometimes spend even decades of their life kind of locked in a box that they created for themselves. Yeah. Um, and they aren't growing. They aren't thriving. They're just holding steady. They're just surviving is what mm-hmm. they're doing rather than thriving. And so you had mentioned earlier on in the podcast that therapists are very happy when they can make their clients cry. And do you think that's because they feel like, oh, I've been able to now get this person to start addressing things that 
they weren't acknowledging before or? I mean, yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, therapists feel like they've helped their client touch on a pain or suffering that they have been in denial you yeah. know, of, which is part of the process, you know, mm-hmm. and, and tears are nothing to fear. Tears are part of life, much as laughter is. And so if you want to have a lot more joy, there has to be a willingness to also allow the suffering, feel the suffering in some level. And the paradox is the more that you're okay with feeling the fear, feeling the anger, feeling the hurt, the less intense it is each time. And yeah. so the more you can accept it and let it like, I just think of it, it's, it's a wave that's going to move through you. Yeah. It's going to pass. But if you clamp down on it, it's like you freeze it in time. Yeah. And you have to let it move through you. You have to let the joy move through, the anger, the sadness, the hurt, the laughter, the inspiration. you got to let it move through you and, and get comfortable with that ebb and flow. Yeah. And also just learn to welcome change, I think, because, you know, like you said, if if we constantly live in a box, then we don't allow ourselves to move forward and enjoy the good things about life because we're so like fixated on protecting ourselves from pain. Absolutely. And that is actually a Buddhist assumption is that everything's always changing. That's mm-hmm. just every and so in the West we try to freeze things. We try to have control. We want control. What what is control is not allowing anything to change unless you give it permission to do so. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, life doesn't work that way and you know life is constantly changing around us. Mm-hmm. And that is where equanimity is a much better model for happiness than pursuing happiness itself because equanimity allows you to move up and down with life. And what happens after a while, it's this paradox where when you accept that there is suffering, you suffer a lot less. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's always, you know, there's like a certain percentage of suffering that's just going to, it's built into life. You get sick. There's loss. The people you love die. You die. There, yeah. there is there, there is a certain amount of suffering that you cannot that that is just built into being human. Yeah. But then there's all this optional suffering on top, which is your story about how life shouldn't that shouldn't have happened that way. That's really bad that it happened that way. Yeah. Uh, and that's wrong. And that's not fair. And that that that. And you have all these stories. And yeah. The, that that the story about how life ought to should go. That's the suffering you have total control over. That is a suffering that is self-imposed, mm-hmm. um, not imposed by life itself. Well, and you so, know, and I think something like that comes from like wisdom and age, because every time I talk to a grandparent, they're just so chill. And they're like, oh, you know, I did this in my life and that in my life. But like, I'm not anxious about any of it anymore because... You know, life has its ups and downs and they're so like they've they've let that all go. They've let that past go and they're just like, no, now it's just being present, mindful. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. We're just starting to get some of the research, um, like the scientific research from the pandemic. And definitely younger adults suffered more psychologically than older adults. Mm -hmm. And it is that equanimity, wisdom, being able to see the big picture, having a a greater sense of how to move through um, suffering with with just a bigger perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess that's something that comes with just time and experience. So again, if you don't allow yourself to experience the downs as much as the ups, 
then you're not having a full experience. Absolutely. It certainly, it, it often comes with age. It's certainly, we all know older adults who don't have a lot of wisdom. So I think it's, I actually, it's almost like a bimodal distribution. Some people really <laughs> do get wise. Yeah. Some really don't. Yeah. And so, but it's certainly something we can cultivate much earlier in life if you have a better roadmap. Yeah. for how to find happiness. Mm-hmm. And so that's actually a metaphor I use in my book that we have a really bad roadmap for happiness in our society at a cultural level, even though there's a ton of Western research to show that how most of us are pursuing happiness, how our parents, how our schools, how our teachers, how our friends are telling us to pursue happiness, it's wrong. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. wrong with Western science. It's wrong with Buddhist psychology. It's just wrong. I don't care which tradition you're looking at. The way we tend to pursue happiness in our culture is really good for marketing and for making money and for building an economy. It is Mm -hmm. not good for building happiness. And you can see it in um, our national statistics on happiness when you compare us to, you know, similar types of uh, countries and just in terms of our level of happiness is below what we one would expect given all the other factors of particularly what it goes into living in the United States. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, I just want to thank you once again for coming on the show. I feel like I just downloaded so much great information there on how to add joy and be more mindful. Before you go, though, I would love it if you could please let everyone know where they can find you online. Absolutely. Um, You can check out my website, which is dianegayhart.com, D-I-A-N-E-G-E-H-A-R-T. That last name is G-E-H-A-R-T.com. And you can also find me on my YouTube channel. Amazing. And I'm going to put all of that in the show notes, which you can access through the summary of this episode. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. I'm going to go have a piece of chocolate right now Love it. <laughs> and practice a moment of mindfulness. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Is That So podcast. For more information on this episode and all past episodes, you can check out my show notes on isthatso.com or follow me on Instagram at isthatso. If you enjoyed this episode and want to show your personal support to the podcast, simply leave a review on iTunes or screenshot today's episode in the podcast app and share it to your stories. All right, friends, that's it. Tune in next week for another episode of the Is That So podcast, and I look forward to hanging out with you again soon.